Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. It's great to have you with us and we have got, as ever, a lot to get through in the time we've got together. If it's okay with you, I'll start shortly reflecting on the epic dramas of recent days, vaccine nationalism, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Brexit, Oh, it combines so many themes. I could be talking for a long time, but I won't, I promise you. And then, of course, we'll turn, as ever, to your brilliant questions, which are ways of guiding us to other highly topical issues of the moment. Uh, before that, if I could just very gently say the next live show, we're in February now, is on Wednesday, February the 17th. That's the live stream on the King's Place website. And you can get tickets now, which is the way to do it. If you buy a ticket now, you put it in the diary, get ready for it. Live on February the 17th. Then, of course, we have live questions, our live unreliable predictions that have historic consequences. Uh, and, of course, time to reflect on whatever's going on then. Politics is so fast moving, I haven't even decided by any stretch of the imagination, the kind of themes we'll be looking at that Wednesday night over a glass of wine. If you are drinking wine or whiskey, I know some of you drink whiskey, some of you are on or have been on dry January. I have, and I'm going to extend it to dry February. Now, this is becoming partly a kind of wellness podcast, as we all know, as you tell me what you do, listening to the podcast and other aspects of your life. So help me. I'm doing dry February as well as dry. I thought, why not? Things are a bit kind of austere at the moment, aren't they? Not allowed to go anywhere. Now that kind of, on one level, tempts you to forget about dry February. But I'm going to give it a go. And if any of you are joining me, let me know. We can motivate each other. Anyway, sometimes I get told off from leaving politics for a second. So back to the politics. Now, as the drama between the EU Commission and the British government sort of erupted. I think it was on Friday night it reached a climactic when finally we heard that they weren't going to trigger Section 16 or Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I got a few tweets from listeners on the hard Brexit wing of the listenership saying, oh, well, Steve, I bet you turn this into something that Johnson got wrong, but it's, you know, the commissioner. Actually, I kind of don't want to do anything like that. I just think there are deeper issues at play here than some panic-stricken reaction from the EU Commission and it's not really about Brexit because the British government could have got those vaccines that they have very successfully got. And I'm going to go on to why I think this has been such a success for the UK in a second. Uh, they could have done that within the EU. They did it when they were still essentially part of the EU last year. The extension was still in play. So, of course, it's very tempting to say this is the first example of Brexit in action. But I think there is something deeper worth looking at, which won't thrill my many Brexit listeners and friends, which is this. It's that Northern Ireland protocol which is looking so weak and flimsy. Remember, Boris Johnson has threatened twice already to trigger the Article 16 of the Protocol, which in effect means that you place a border in between Northern Ireland and Ireland in some form or other. 
and now the EU has done it. And this is only a month in to the whole Brexit deal, and this is really worrying. This is also, of course, by no means the only manifestation of the tensions triggered by the protocol. And in a very vivid way, you have television shots of empty shelves in parts of Northern Ireland because of the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the problems between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland arising from the protocol. And we've had the leader of the DUP, one of the many ironies of this never-ending saga, Arlene Foster coming on the radio and saying this protocol is unstable inherently. It's not the teething problems, it is the protocol itself. And on this, she is right. It is ironic, of course, because she was a supporter of Brexit. The majority in Northern Ireland voted for Remain. And it is ironic, too, because the Theresa May deal, which, uh, God, Theresa May spent so much time trying to woo the DUP, inviting them to checkers every other second, and they rejected it. But, of course, the Theresa May deal would not have created this problem. Britain would have still been in the customs union and she prevented that from happening in effect or was one of the many forces that prevented that from happening. There would have been a pretense under the May deal to look for a technological solution to the border question but anyone who looked at it knew that there was no technological solution. So Britain would have been in the customs union, there would have been no need for a border. Which brings me back to a fundamental point. I remember shortly after the Brexit referendum result having breakfast with the then German ambassador, very reflective, thoughtful guy. He's not there now. I can't remember where he moved to. I've got a no, he came from Washington. Who knows where he is now? But anyway, that's not the point. He said to me that of all the countries in the European Union, the UK was least suited to carrying out a departure in any form for one reason and one reason alone the Irish question. It was unique amongst EU members, it was a member still then, in having this uh, one part of uh, a country, Northern Ireland, leaving the EU with the rest of Britain and the other part of Ireland, Ireland, staying in the EU. You. And I've reflected many times since, as have so many others, about what the answer is to this question. I've just told you Theresa May's, it sounds like ancient history now, and there are some questions about Theresa May's deal from you, which we'll come to later. But Boris Johnson's answer to that Irish question was he had to reject Theresa May's, obviously, uh, because he wanted to be Prime Minister and had to do things differently. He promised Northern Ireland business leaders, the DUP, he would not agree to, in effect, a border between uh, the rest of Britain and Northern Ireland. But that's what he did sign up to, so that was his answer to it. But the protocol is meant to be a way in which goods can still flow from the rest of the GB to Northern Ireland and vice versa without disrupting the EU's, uh, the purity of the EU's market, which of course begins in the rest of Ireland uh, once Northern Ireland is left behind and you're in the rest of that land entity. That is 
causing all kinds of problems. Now, the manifestation now is the protocol. Let us remember that the British government threatened to break international law by violating the deal that Johnson negotiated before coming up with the protocol compromise. Twice now, UK, once the EU, have threatened to blow it to pieces by triggering this Article 16, uh, the emergency trigger in exceptional circumstances. And so it seems to me that there is no answer to the Irish question except two. The protocol doesn't answer it. There will be recurring problems and occasional eruptions like we've had over the vaccine drama with the EU Commission blowing it in terms of credibility and seriousness at the end of last week. Uh, but there will be more, and there is this ongoing problem at the border. And if Brexit is sustained, there are two answers to the Irish question, and only two. One, a united Ireland. The second, which is the way Theresa May was moving, which is Britain joining the customs union. The rest, you can play around, you can negotiate and negotiate, but in the end, when you have one part in the European Union and the other out with a, the hardest of hard Brexits, there are no other answers. And this is going to be one of the recurring themes and proof, I'm afraid, that Brexit is not yet done. And it doesn't mean, you know, some of my friends on the Brexit wing were saying, you know, that, oh, Steve, you must, you've always thought the Commission were godlike and Britain the baddies. And it's never been like that. The EU is, of course, a deeply flawed system. But we were in it. And that was the mechanism, essentially, that meant the Good Friday Agreement for Northern Ireland, the rest of Ireland, could be applied. And committing to that Good Friday Agreement, whilst leaving in the manner that the UK government has chosen to do, is going to bring up problem after problem after problem. Now, to be really positive for a second, one of the things that is challenging is to learn the lessons, the good lessons as well as the bad lessons. And we've reflected a lot on the things that have gone wrong during this pandemic. How can you not, you know, since the last podcast, we've had that figure of more than 100,000 dying because of the pandemic, Britain's world-beating record on that front. But let's focus on two success stories and the lessons to be learned briefly, if that's okay. And then we'll move on to a variety of other themes, all contemporary and urgent, via your questions. The first success, the vaccines. Now, here the government did something absolutely right, the whole sequence. They got, first of all, a vaccine task force together early on with a clear brief, which was to get the vaccines. And that task force met that brief, a clear brief, clear line of control that Kate Bingham was running the task force. She was accountable to Johnson and Hancock and the others. And you could measure precisely what they were doing. So every now and again at press conferences, they would say, and the uh, Hancock or Johnson and the vaccine task force has ordered X million doses of this vaccine and that vaccine. Absolutely clear. And when the vaccines were given the go ahead, they were ready to be produced at high levels. Touch wood. That seems to have happened so far. Now, this is a clear example 
of clear lines of command and control. A prime minister, a health secretary, cabinet office minister or whoever pulls a lever and something happens. They create a body with the direct powers to buy up vaccines and it happens. Now what was the other great success? It was setting up those the Nightingale hospitals. In that first uh, spring pandemic lockdown, the great fear understandably of Johnson and others and indeed all of us based on the terrible experiences in Italy and those awful photos uh, of overrun hospitals was that the NHS would be overrun and immediately with that fear in mind they got the army in to construct those additional hospitals available again this time but of course now the staff aren't available such was the underfunding of the NHS in earlier terms of this government but it was an epic achievement to get the hospitals in place quickly and what were the common connections again they got the army in clear lines of command and control Johnson or whoever the defense secretary got uh, commissioned the army to do it the army with relatively simple lines of accountability move quickly and did it and where things have gone badly wrong is when the whole fractured atomizing elements of public services could not come together fast enough a minister would pull a lever and discover it was actually something to do with some other agency the government had created in the past with public health england nhs england etc or they brought in their friends from the private sector but there was no clear coordination or control and levels of accountability and there was chaos test and trace the attempt to get the right medical equipment very costly billions and billions of pounds costly exercises which were poorly coordinated no clear lines of command and control and I think this is a lesson I know it's been a kind of theme of this podcast every now and again that the atomization of public services or the assumption that various elements of the private sector can perform much better if quickly commissioned has been tested to unfulfilled consequence so many times not just in the pandemic but in the past and what is required are clear lines of command and control and accountability and then you can get things done quickly and there's two examples uh, which have been done brilliantly well and there are reasons for it and I think there are reasons for the chaos in other areas it's of course partly to do with the government and their instinct to sort of give out contracts to friends or Tory donors and Keir Starmer should have made much much more of that but fracturing atomizing provision doesn't empower consumers Uh, it doesn't save money for the taxpayer it causes chaos clear lines of accountability and you get efficient delivery Now, I know applying that is complex, but I think that is a lesson. So there we are. That's really good news. And I think the vaccines, it appears, will continue to be delivered. But linking it with Brexit and the whole tendency of all of us probably to have good guys and bad guys doesn't work with this. But keep an eye out on that Northern Ireland protocol. It's it's flimsy. By the way, isn't it interesting? talking about flimsy the whole deal was very flimsy and David Frost Frosty 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 when Cummings was there Frosty was his favorite figure 
to deliver everything. So Cummings basically made him national security advisor, a big post. He had had no experience in security, and he's not doing it. They've made a more orthodox appointment. And oh, Frosty, he's going to carry on with Brexit and other things in number 10. I think that's quite significant. I've talked before about the changes in number 10 towards more orthodox measures and with people in there. Quite a variety of different backgrounds, but far removed, all of them, from the sort of angry, shallow, revolutionary instincts of Cummings and having a few favourites badly chosen. So, old Frosty, he might have to live through the consequences of his negotiation if he remains in charge of the Brexit remit. Anyway, let's now move on, if we can. Related question, uh, from, by the way, thanks for the questions. There have been loads of them. I might not have time to get through as many as I'd hoped, but I'm going to try and get through as many as possible. They're all urgently relevant, so if you haven't sent in questions, stay tuned. And do send them in in the future, or just make points to uh, steverick14 at icloud.com. That's steverick14 at icloud.com. And if you're now in the midst of some alarmingly draining exercise like running or press-ups or whatever you're doing while listening, I gave that address at 18 minutes 50 seconds roughly in. So remember that and go back and you'll be able to write down the email and send me something and book a ticket for King's Place on February the 17th. Oh, there's so much to do. Now, Joanna Lata makes a very interesting point. There was an article uh, last week by Tom McTague, who writes for the, I think it's The Atlantic. It was reprinted in The Times on Saturday. And this is kind of almost like Proustian. I don't know if any of you have read Proust, but the fascination with memory and how we perceive things. Anyway, Tom McTague wondered whether, if the vaccine is a success, still a big if, we're still in the fog of this pandemic. He quotes a writer saying, what we experience in life isn't what we remember, and that endings are very, very important. And McTague went on to write, or Joanna has, summarising that interesting insight. In other words, people have short memories. In the context of the pandemic, uh, the argument goes that people only remember the end, where life will hopefully get back to some normality, not the terrible lapses of judgment that may have cost lives. Uh, now, Joanna, uh, and it's an interesting phenomenon, I think it's broadly true. To give another example, the Falklands War, uh, Margaret Thatcher was seen to be wholly culpable in the origins of that war, along with her defence minister, one of her favourites, Nicholas Ridley, because they were cutting back on defence and had begun uh, limiting the defence of the Falklands Island in a very obvious way, and it was an invitation to the Argentinian junta to invade, which they did. And even the inquiry found the government culpable. But all people remembered was the end. She won the war. And we all know that what followed, you know, she started quoting Churchill, that's Winston, blah, blah. she became even more of the Iron Lady. And it helped, it wasn't key, but it helped to win the 1983 general election with a landslide. And yet the origins, why the Falklands were invaded in the first place, she was partly responsible, but the voters forgot that, or most did. Now, Joanna asks, uh, how could Labour create their own narrative 
about all of this, taking into consideration Keir Starmer is not a natural storyteller. Yeah, no, he's not. Uh, he's shown no evidence of being so far. And the answer is, he has now been presented with a challenge. He knows two things. One, that if the vaccine goes well, it is likely that that is how many voters will be inclined to remember the whole sequence. What we experience in life isn't what we remember. So he has a challenge, which is to make sure voters remember. And it won't be easy, and it won't be defining, because the other thing that happens is that memories fade about epic dramas that people have lived through quite quickly. But it will be important to do so. And so he really, I think, needs to not feel quite so constrained in raising with Johnson and elsewhere all the colossal cock-ups that we know about. Not cock-ups, misjudgments, which is a very different thing. So, but you're, it's, it's, it's a fascinating concept and it's difficult for the opposition leader because to some extent it's about the way events unfold and our perception of them. Quite hard for a leader of the opposition to control. On the wider point, storytellers win elections and you've got to become, as a leader, a storyteller. So, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot in that. Noah Keat asks, I listen to your podcast with great interest while imagining where I plan to visit after the lockdown. That's quite a good combo, listening whilst thinking of exotic places. I'm pleased, he says, that many of your listeners hail from Edinburgh. It's a city I love and always feel at home in. That's one of the cities I want to visit post-lockdown for the festival. But, you know, I doubt if it will happen. Uh, this year. But you're right, uh, no, a lot of listeners from Edinburgh, they're either listening, walking up Arthur's Seat, or walking through the lovely meadows, or drinking whis whiskey and ruminating. Anyway, here's a question. It's almost related to the last one. It's widely argued that Boris Johnson, so desperate to maintain optimism, has manifestly failed to prioritise making the right decisions. But is he the only Prime Minister to behave in this way? How can leaders effectively balance listening to the concerns of voters while also not being entirely swept up by the opinion polls and praise in the media? Uh, yeah, well, this is interesting because, in fact, the polls on the pandemic show people are willing, by huge majorities, to accept tougher constraints. In other words, I think they're voting to be safe rather than voting to be free. Whereas Johnson himself is a libertarian who struggles with that concept. But more importantly, there's a section of his parliamentary party who clearly do. And Johnson has, to some extent, paid more attention to them at times than the scientists and indeed the opinion polls. But the opinion polls on this have given him permission to come down with lockdowns, even if he's late to them, which he is. He's late at the moment to the sort of travel constraints. Uh, he's trying a third way on that of um, closing some flights, but not all. But more broadly, the point is important. Leaders that follow opinion polls, ironically, become so paralysed with fear that they tend to lose public opinion over time. So the art is to take opinion with you. Some leaders have done that. Quite a few haven't. John Park writes, thank Oh, John Park wants me... I, I, the other day I mentioned about how an emailer, I think it was Nick Radcliffe, wrote from Scotland saying 
the impact of Brexit in Scotland has been as wrenching as the poll tax was when Margaret Thatcher first imposed it in Scotland, or more so, I think, Nick argued. And that is one of the things fueling independence or support for independence now, Brexit. And John asked about that. Well, it was a the whole poll tax saga from the late 1980s was an extraordinary drama where Margaret Thatcher finally lost her capacity to measure, which she had brilliantly, how far she could go and get away with it. Poll tax, she went too far. And she turned many English Conservatives against her. Local councils, Tory run for decades, turned on the Tory government over this. But she introduced it first in Scotland for expedient reasons. It wasn't a punishment. It was just that the rating system in Scotland, which was the old property tax, had to be, there were all kinds of reasons, and and some of you will know it better than me, but basically it had to be changed a year earlier than the rest of the UK. But it was as unpopular in Scotland as it was in the rest of the UK, and they got it first. And the Scottish Conservative Party has never really recovered from the reaction to that and the assumption that Scotland was being picked out for punishment. Interestingly, at the time, it was the Scottish Labour Party that tended to benefit politically, and to some extent, the Lib Dems, the SNP, less so. And there's an interesting question. Why was there not an equivalent rise in support for independence then, as there has been uh, partly arising from the experience of Brexit. But anyway, that's a very brief summary. And I know those of you running up Arthur's seat or in the meadows or having whiskey will know much more about it. Uh, but that was, I was the BBC local government correspondent at the time and covered it. And I, I remember it well. And uh, it was that you were in effect chronicling the beginning of the fall of Thatcher with it. Tony Layton tells me something interesting about Boris Johnson's hair amongst other things. New listeners, we've been trying to analyse the significance of Johnson's hair. Is it all a terrible accident or what? Anyway, Tony says, I was talking with a gentleman a year or two ago who drove Boris's battle bass during one of his London mayoral campaigns. Apparently, one of the last things that Boris did before getting off the bus was to ruffle up his hair, deliberate. Now, my hair expert, a keen listener to the podcast, Lawrence Holvey, tells tells me, now he, he follows everyone's hair and is the world's authority on it, that it is confirms Tony's view. By the way, Tony asks a whole range of other things which come to an another occasion, if that's okay, Tony, including what would have happened to Corbyn and co if they had been Prime Minister and co dealing with the pandemic anyway my hair expert says this that it's all to do with the it's very thin blonde hair and the only way you can make it thick is to sort of let it do its own thing and if you try to control it it would look much thinner so he confirms really it's a very deliberate uh, hairstyle in effect um, to deal, I mean, Tony Blair dealt with the recession by sort of carving it and putting it up a bit and hairspray. Boris Johnson, in a way, has gone the other way. Um, but it is, it, it, it's not accidental, which kind of makes sense. You wouldn't accidentally have that hairstyle, surely, would you? Okay, Chris Park says, two themes of your podcasts are running and Brexit. And sometimes the madness of Brexit. I have an example of these two themes interacting quite neatly. This is interesting. 
Needing new running shoes and with the shops all closed, I ordered two pairs on the internet. Although I paid in pounds, I didn't know the running shoes were shipped from France. After the shoes sat in customs for a month, I've now been presented with an import duty bill of £63.26. Yeah, and that's the kind of news story, Chris, that these bills are coming in that no one had quite anticipated paying when they made orders. I hope you're running perhaps bare feet, but don't do that in this weather. Pay the bill and go running and curse. But yeah, it's an interesting point. And as you say, you blend in two of the many themes of this podcast. Thank you. One from Michael Freeman, um, continuing to enjoy the podcast from my long distance perspective from a snowy, rural Japan. I told you, our rock and roll politics community, we're global. And that is a lovely image of rural Japan in the snow. And he asks about the notion of impartiality in broadcast media and suggests it's outdated and that the key requirement, as with any form of journalism, is to be evidence-based. I deliberately choose the term evidence-based rather than fact-based because facts are not always certain. I'm also of the view that there should be a wider range of broadcast media free to cover whatever topics they choose and express opinions uh, without the need for false equivalence between viewpoints in order to some achieve some dubious form of impartiality. He says, by the way, if you want any to see truly anodyne political reporting, you should watch NHK News in Japan, uh, where journalists can be and are removed from their position if they ask senior ministers difficult questions on air. Blimey, I didn't realise that about Japan. So it's back to that, Minister, would you like to tell us what you're doing today kind of thing. We've gone to the other extreme of portraying them all as liars, or we did for a time. I think that's fading. But yeah, I get a lot of questions about this and praise for CNN, where there isn't the same constraints. And quite a few of you think that the sort of BBC demands or the demands on the BBC of impartiality are becoming increasingly dated. And I don't think it's just the examples of CNN, funnily enough. I think it's the examples of podcasts. I know more and more people listening to podcasts and choosing to. Uh, They might get views, but it kind of guides them towards their own thoughts by reacting against or for or whatever. But the key thing I think, Michael, I know I've got on and on about this, is space. And obviously the BBC isn't going to give the kind of space we have in this podcast to all reflect for an increasingly lengthy time. But I think without space and the obligation of balance, you really can't shed much light at all, say in a four or five minute report on the 10 o'clock news By the way, five minutes is generous. It's never usually that long. Or in a six-minute interview with two people, uh, sometimes at the end of the Today programme, a five-minute interview with two pundits. You just don't get anything. And when we can all have access now to podcasts and space, the glory of space, I think that is becoming an increasingly outdated form of which the obligation to balance can in itself become, as you imply, Michael, a distortion. Enjoy that sunny Japan. Okay, on to Kerry Hiles. Been enjoying the podcast and and the book on the Prime Ministers and the 13-year-old son, a politics nerd in the making, is reading it too. That's great. And I I wouldn't call it a nerd. I think that's a really cool thing for a 13-year-old 
uh, year old to do. Anyway, Kerry Wonders, has Labour made a huge error in voting for the government's trade deal with the EU? But Kerry worries about the consequences, such as the open goal it gives to the SMP. Anyway, well, yeah, I, I... I've come to, I thought it had been a terrible mistake. I, I now think it's probably neither here nor there in that most voters uh, won't have noticed. But I do think, Kerry, that if he, Keir Starmer, kind of pretends Brexit is not, is, is done and doesn't mention it, when there are so many consequences, he will get into deep trouble. Uh, because one way or another, the government will, for example, before the election, say, contrive a row with the European Union over something or other. And what's he going to say then? So you've got to start framing your arguments now, or pretty close to now, about the unravelling of the non-deal. And that the Irish protocol thing, I think, will become a very big story. It has already because of vaccine nationalism, but it will be a wider one than that so but but thank you and at the time I agreed with you I thought what's he doing because he's basically cutting off the space to put a case which will become increasingly powerful uh, Stephen Gross writes about uh, Keir Starmer in a different context it's interesting I hadn't read this quote but he says Harold Wilson uh, wrote of PMQs that every prime minister works long into the night on his answers and on all the notes available to him and he also wrote, if Britain ever had a prime minister who didn't fear questions, our parliamentary democracy would be in danger. Yeah, Stephen, I can add to that. Well, you, you, I bet you know, because those are really interesting quotes. But um, Wilson used to drink a glass of whiskey before PNQs to calm his nerves. And this is someone who had been a performer by then for a long time. Um, now, Stephen points out, Boris Johnson's approach is different. He rarely answers Starmer's questions, preferring to attack his opponent rather than address the question. And when he does answer, what he says is often significantly at variance with the truth. Uh, and yet to develop, and, oh, sorry, the question is, Starmer has yet to develop a technique for dealing this. What should he do in the face of such behaviour? By the way, Stephen listens to the podcast while cooking, which conjures up a, a rather... Uh, nice, uh, comforting image in these dark midwinter days. Uh, you know, I hope the food is not um, in any way disturbed by the um, dark topics sometimes of the podcast. So, yeah, I think this is a key question because Starmer, on one level, it has done well in scrutinizing Johnson. It's what he's trained to do and can do. And Johnson, remarkably, for someone who's risen to the top, has on the whole evaded scrutiny. It is when you look back, you know, the time when he was London mayor, there'd be a few interviews where he'll have knockabout jokes with Jeremy Paxman and so on. And as foreign secretary, a few interviews here and there. Famously, during the election, he avoided the Andrew Neil interrogation. So he's avoided scrutiny on the whole. Now he has to do it with Starmer once a week. And Starmer, just by posing tough questions, uh, which he knows will expose certain areas of weakness, has done well. But it's nowhere near enough. At PMQs, and of course it's difficult in the midst of a pandemic, first of all you need tonal variety. Uh, you need humour. The successful leaders of the opposition at Primus Questions, and it does matter, use uh, humour like a political weapon. And the other thing he needs to do is draw a conclusion as he poses the question. So 
Blair was a master as leader of the opposition. And he would sort of ask Major a series of questions and then famously say things like, look, the difference is I lead my party, you follow yours. Whereas Keir Starmer, like the lawyer he is, kind of sits down having posed the six questions to a witness and, and, and leaves the conclusion for the jury to draw. But this isn't law, this is politics and it's an art form. And so I think he needs to do more, even within that confined space of Prime Minister's questions, uh, to be uh, effective. Thank you very much, Stephen, for the question. Uh, Nick Shaudak Shetrin, excuse me if I've mispronounced the surname, but I think that is the uh, the, the way it is pronounced, Nick. Uh, Nick's uh, seen the live show in Edinburgh. Uh, let's hope we can all meet there again. And at Greenwich. Nick, I'm hopefully coming back to Greenwich when theatres reopen. Well, I am. Got a couple of planned dates. Uh, fingers crossed for those. Given Labour, this is a lot of Labour questions in tonight's show, but we did the EU and the vaccine and everything earlier. I got some questions on that, but I've kind of addressed that if that's okay, but I might well return to them next week. Uh, given Labour have effectively lost Scotland and it feels almost impossible to appeal to both sides of their historic voter coalition, working class towns and metropolitan cities, is it even possible for Labour to win a majority without writing off one half of their party? Do they just need to decide whose views they're going to represent given the polarisation of society? Arguably, that's what the Conservatives have done with the more liberal coalition under David Cameron. Or, or they might have done it under Cameron, but of course, under Johnson, they've uh, managed to secure Labour's small c Conservative uh, working class town vote. This is, of course, the ultimate strategic uh, question for Starmer. Does he write off the votes in the northern uh, towns of England, the so-called Red Wall, and become a progressive liberal party that appeals to the cities uh, and perhaps other parts, say, of the south of England and work on the assumption that the Red Wall is lost? I think in the end you can't do that, partly because of Scotland, a recurring theme of this podcast, Labour are not going to recover in Scotland in the near term, at least. The SNP are going to win big in the May elections. So you do have to try and win back the seats in the Red Wall. I think the question is, can you do that and form a progressive coalition with the cities and elsewhere? And there are big themes about the economy, which I think link both. One lot might be Remainers and less bothered by, to put it crudely, a kind of politics of jingoism and the flag and all that kind of thing. But I think there are many, many shared areas. You just have to be nimble and not clunky as you frame your arguments and pitch for the election. If Labour could work on the assumption that uh, they were as they used to be, the dominant party in Scotland, you might be able to be less choosy in England. But at the moment, they've got to do well in England. It's a massive task for Starmer, a mountain to climb. But leaders of the opposition often have mountains to climb. Cameron had a mountain to climb, and he almost climbed it in 2010. Not quite, actually. And so, so I want to do more on Starmer and how he might be able to win in one of these podcasts or the live show because it's apart from anything else it's a really interesting challenge wherever you are on the spectrum 
what would you do if you were leader of the Labour Party? It's something I do. You know, if you sometimes you can't sleep at night, I pose that question. I'm asleep within five minutes as I try and work out the answer. Okay, a question from the famous Joe Laundry Thomas. Laundry as in Joe does his laundry whilst listening to the podcast. One of the less glamorous pursuits, it has to be said. And it's again a Labour star. Isn't it interesting? A lot, there's a lot around about Starmer at the moment in the media as well. How is he doing well enough kind of theme emerging? Anyway, Joe asks, are Labour and Keir Starmer embarked on a two-term project or are they seeking to regain power in one parliament? Well, many analysing the nature of the challenge, Joe, would say it would have to be two terms for Starmer. I profoundly disagree. I've got a view which I think is almost a law of modern politics, that a leader of the opposition has only one term. And if he or she loses at the election at the end of that term, he or she should go, as quite often is the case now, Ed Miliband, William Hague and, and others. The reason being partly that with the level of scrutiny in our modern 24-hour media, voters will be fed up with that figure if he or she is leader of the opposition for eight or nine years. It's one of the reasons why Neil Kinnock lost in 1992. He had been leader for so long and people were just, uh, frankly, fed up with him. It wasn't the only reason the Tories won in 92. But uh, Neil Kinnock faced the nightmare of getting it in 83, where the Tory majority was so big, much bigger than the one Johnson has now, that he was never going to win in 87. But in not winning in 87, I'm afraid he was doomed in 92. It was too long. So I think if Starmer doesn't win next time, they should either remove him or he should resign. But he's got this one chance. Will he take it. Andrew Greystone. Oh, he listens. Andrew listens in the bath. Now, some people, Andrew, listen with a glass of wine in the bath. Up to you. But he says the longer the podcast goes, the water gets, uh, the colder the water gets. Well, I suppose there's a logic to that. This is one of the longer ones. I failed in my pledge uh, because the questions are so uh, brilliant and there are many of them. You have mentioned several times that Boris Johnson doesn't think about consequences. This was a big theme of last week, the uh, leadership and consequence. He does whatever it takes to get through the next vote, the next question, the next day. But Andrew says, why? I suspect it's because he doesn't have an overall narrative about what he believes and therefore what direct political compass points to. Either that, Andrew, which is, I think, the case on many issues, but on the pandemic, of course, events have forced him against something he believes. I mean, he is basically uh, a kind of libertarian, let people do what they want and all the rest of it. And he's hated imposing constraints in a, in a way that others would have found urgently necessary but on the whole but on the whole I think you're right he doesn't have a clear political compass and it's reflected in his current number 10 now which is stuff full of people of extraordinary backgrounds Allegra Stratton once a Labour sympathizer for a time anyway and you then have his uh, chief of staff who worked very closely with Alistair Darling so that the kind of experience as a civil servant by the way of course in the treasury so you have people with that kind of background he's brought in a guy who worked for Tony Blair in terms of public service delivery but then you have people whose background with a revolutionary communist party but have kind of swerved towards the libertarian Brexity right it's it's quite a 
quite a range, and I think that reflects his bewilderment in some respects. Zaki Bulos asks, why did Labour vote against Theresa May's deal or didn't support it way back then? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Oh, by the way, uh, Zaki listens to this uh, doing all manner of things. I'm either exercising or brushing my teeth before going to bed, depending on when I get the chance to listen. Well, that's maybe combine the two or all three. Listen, brush teeth. I, I, anyway, I'm diverting from your question, which is about why didn't Labour support Theresa May's deal? There's a book to be written about the failure of May and that deal, because anyone you speak to on the Labour side now would say we'd prefer her deal to the one that Johnson negotiated. Britain would still be in the customs union, be none of the Northern Ireland problems. But here is when political reality sometimes clashes with what in retrospect would have been the right path. After the 2017 election, where May had no majority, a lot of Labour people dared to hope they could stop Brexit altogether and therefore, and have another referendum. And therefore, May's deal was seen as the worst of those options. If you juxtapose May's deal with Remain, you opt for Remain. And that was the kind of juxtaposition hanging around over Corbyn in that period. Uh, Corbyn himself, I think, would have voted for May's deal. Uh, but the, peop- the, the Labour MPs and members yearned for Remain. If you put May's deal versus Johnson's deal, they would have voted for it. And I wonder whether the DUP would in the light of what's happened now. But sometimes politics can't deliver a clear way forward and you end up with a dark outcome. Um, Mark Hawes asks, I feel that you, me, oh thank you, have nailed the conundrum of Boris Johnson not thinking through consequences. My question is, is it because he's lazy or because he cannot deal with potential bad news? I don't think he is lazy actually. He, he, He His mind wanders. And he has trouble sometimes concentrating on one thing for very long. But he can put in the hours if he wants to. He has to feel motivated. And he does can put in the hours. I think it's partly dealing with the potential bad news when you think through consequences. It would stop him from doing what, for shallow reasons, he wants to do in the short term. So it's partly about that, partly to deal with the earlier question about why from Andrew Greystone, is I think he's also not firmly rooted uh, ideologically and doesn't quite know his political purposes or think them through and link them to means and outcomes. Um, So there are lots of reasons. But I've never bought the idea he's lazy. I mean, look, when he was a journalist, he was editor of The Spectator, wrote books, did TV. I mean, he works quite hard. And one thing he has shown in this year of trauma for him is resilience. A lot of people didn't think he would be here by now. I mean, I don't mean as in uh, uh, I mean, as Prime Minister. Some, of course, there was a, those dramatic days when people didn't think he would survive the virus, but that's a different matter. But he is resilient and determined. I'm sure he's determined to fight the next election. Uh, Kim Barathas, over the course of time, we have seen a lack of stellar MPs occupying the great offices of states. But do the current occupants represent the worst ever set of people to hold the posts effectively? Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, Prime Minister, I guess. So, uh, Cam listens whilst uh, going from on a deserted train from Coventry to Birmingham New Street. I bet they're empty at the moment. Yeah, you've probably got the entire train to yourself, Cam. I, it's totally objective, uh, subjective, this, isn't it? Well, not totally. 
Uh, I think that, you know, objectively, people would agree that there have been certainly more substantial cabinets in the past. Sunak as Chancellor, uh, a lot of people still rate him very highly, see him as a future Prime Minister. So I'm not sure you can make that judgment objectively at the moment. But the cabinet as a whole, I think you can. It's a weak cabinet. They're terrified of uh, Boris Johnson and challenging him. And he's the type of prime minister who would benefit from profound challenge. So yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's something in that. Now, uh, we've got, uh, there are some other questions I wanted to get through. Stuart Wolvin has asked about the austerity period post-2010 and uh, whether it was misapplied in the context of that period. Uh, Daniel Cullen wants to find and reflect on whether if Jeremy Corbyn had followed his anti-EU instincts in 2017, maybe he would be reflecting public opinion and that Red Wall constituency much more than what he was in effect obliged to do, which was to campaign for Remain with a degree of enthusiasm. That's an interesting point about Corbyn and sort of counterintuitive in some respects. And Kevin Winstanley has asked me to reflect on the difference of writing a uh, or reading or writing a memoir versus a biography and how you form judgments of the characters on the political stage. Now, all of those uh, are great questions, which will take quite a lot of time. But do you know, we've been going for over 50 minutes. So if it's okay with you three and lots of others who've written, I'm very conscious of the great questions and each of them could take up a podcast actually you know how you approach a memoir and things is very interesting and relate the political past to the current situation and all the rest of it and yeah Corbyn it is one of the great ironies that Corbyn instinct might have been to campaign for what turned out to be the victorious position in the Brexit referendum anyway so much to reflect on as ever so keep the questions coming thank you for those i did manage to answer or try and answer you might disagree in which case let me know and uh, let's all congregate again next week same time same place if you've got a chance to put a review on itunes i'm told that helps I've told you before, I don't understand why, but please do it because it does. That would be great. And tell all your friends and all the rest of it that we are building up the only place where we can all make sense of what the hell's going on in the wacky world of British politics. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you all next week. Oh, yeah, don't forget, book that ticket for King's Place February 17th in one of the darkest months. We will have some fun. Thank you. Thank you.